Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Manu Machada, author of Selfless Minds, a Contemporary Perspective on Vasubandhu's Metaphysics, published in 2023 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Manu. Thank you, Malcolm. Well, let's dive right in. Your book is defending a Buddhist thesis, that there are no selves, and you're drawing on the work of the philosopher Vasubandhu, as the the title says. So let's just start with the big picture for our listeners. Who is Vasubandhu, and why do you think it's important to engage with his ideas when you're defending the claim that there are no selves? So Vasubandhu is one of the most important philosophers, I think, in the Abhidharma tradition. He was... uh, you know, his book, Abhidharma Kosh Pasha, which is also the focus of my book on him, um, is one of the main texts in the Abhidharma tradition. It has the Abhidharma thesis from the Sothantrika school. That's uh, the school that Vasubandhu founded. But more than that, it is also a conversation with the earlier um, school in the Abhidharma tradition. So it is, you know, not only giving us uh, Vasubandhu's own view, it is also laying out the Abhidharma thesis for the first time in a systematic way. So it's a very important book, I think, in the Abhidharma tradition. Great. And we'll talk a bit about who the Abhidharmakas are and things like that as we we work through the book. But let's, let's back up a little... Why did you get interested in this book's topic and in Vasubandhu and Abhidharmakas? So I was um, interested in doing Indian philosophy after I finished my PhD. I trained in the West. I come from um, India, but I was trained. I did my PhD in the West. I did my first two degrees in Delhi. Um, and then my thought was to use this training 
to apply to Indian philosophy because I thought Indian philosophy is something that would benefit because of my cultural background and because of my training in the West. So it was bringing these two things together. And I started um, looking at the Nyaya. My early work was in Nyaya philosophy and I was interested in the topic of self. And so, of course, I look at the Nyaya proof of the self. And then I start reading the commentaries in Nyaya. And what happens is the commentaries are talking about the Buddhist view. They talk about, you know, the objection to their view, the Nyaya commentaries. And the objection, it seemed to me, uh, are coming from the Buddhist view. And naturally, I was kind of... Are they being fair to their objectors here? So my, um, you know, my thought was, I'll go and read the Buddhist text. And when I saw the depth of the no-self view in Abhidharma Koshipasha, I got very interested in trying to, you know, explore that more. And... The more I looked at the debate in the Indian philosophy, so in the Abhidharma Koshipasha and in the Nyaya commentaries, um, and also some of the Mimansa stuff, it seemed to me that the debate was almost at a stalemate. There were big metaphysical issues in the background about, you know, what is the what is the nature of the real, are properties real or particulars and very important metaphysical issues. But when it came to the debate about the self, you know, it was not helping um, for me to, you know, take sides because it seemed to be a big stalemate there. And so I started looking at the literature on the no-self view in the Western tradition. And that's why this book really is, you know, kind of a dialogue between Vasubandhu and the contemporary Western views about the self, including including some very important Buddhist philosophers, uh, contemporary Buddhist philosophers now who are writing about Vasubandhu and writing about other Buddhist views of the self. Great. That that leads me right into what I was going to ask you first, which is, with books like these, there's often questions about methodology, which you've you've just raised. So you're engaging with a pre-modern Sanskrit text, a thinker like Vasubandhu, but you're also working with contemporary uh, Western philosophy, sort of cognitive science material and things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your your research methods, how you're putting together your arguments? Um, you know, just a little bit about your methodology here. So one thing I realized, um, you know, when I started looking at the literature on the self um, in the contemporary philosophy, is even though the no-self views are quite common and quite popular, and especially because of, you know, the post-parfit um, um, literature, in the, in the Western tradition and in cognitive science too, um, it seemed to me that they were not taking this no self-view seriously enough. Um, and I'll get to, you know, why I think some Buddhist philosophers don't take it seriously enough too. So that, when I say not seriously enough, you know, they said, okay, there is no entity self or, you know, there is no deep further fact or a metaphysically robust selves. But that did not mean that there was nothing about the sense of self or self-representations. 
And, you know, these surrogate cells, as I call them, seem to be doing all the work of the self in epistemology. So we had given up on a metaphysically, um, you know, robust self, but we create the surrogate to do all the work that self needs to do. And that kind of worried me because I, if I understood the Buddhist project right, it was trying to say, at least Vasubandhu's argument was specifically about that, um, you know, the, the self does not do any work. Vasubandhu's got a criterion of reality. In Quinean terms, I can put it simply, to be is to be causally efficacious. The criterion of existence is there must be some causal work for it to do. And Vasubandhu's argument was trying to show that the self does not do any causal work. So creating all these, you know, sense of self or self-representations, these thin notions to do the work of the self, it just seemed to me they were missing the point of Vasubandhu's argument. So this is a, an attempt, this book is an attempt to bring this insight, you know, front and center. The book doesn't have too many big theses, but the idea was to bring this insight front and center that, you know, we can't have surrogates for the self doing the work of the self and still think that we have a Buddhist view or, you know, we're talking about the Buddhist no-self view. And in particular, in Vasubandhu's chapter nine, which is, you know, very central to the book, I, I noticed that he has the same kind of argument against persons. So, you know, in, in ordinary uh, talk, we use the notion of self and person interchangeably sometimes. But the Buddhists have a clear distinction. You know, the self is the something like a Hindu soul, you know, a Cartesian ego, um, a substance which is distinct from mental and physical states, uh, which is eternal or at least continues over time and across lifetimes, whereas the self is just a psychophysical complex. But it is a psychophysical complex which continues over time and, in fact, across lifetimes. So persons, according to the Buddhists, you know, play the self role in some sense. And what Vasubandhu shows is that the, it's the same argument, you know, that the self doesn't do any causal work, and he says persons don't do any causal work. There's an internal debate amongst the Buddhists, you know, amongst the Abhidharma, and the Pudgalvadins, or personalists as they are called, um, in chapter 9 um, of the Abhidharma Koshipasha as well, where he's saying that these two, uh, there is the same reason for dismissing both the self and the person. And that is something that, you know, contemporary philosophers working on Buddhism don't take seriously. So this is, you know, in that way, my book is a rather radical no-self view because it has no self-representations, no um, sense of self, and no persons. And then the challenge is much, much harder. You know, how do we, how do we account for the phenomenology of experience? How do we account for all the work that needs to be done um, in at least, you know, when we are thinking about the philosophy of mind? Yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, you have kind of two targets here. On the one hand, you're engaging in contemporary philosophy uh, for Buddhist philosophy, people who have per certain interpretations of, of Buddhism. Um, 
and maybe defenses of what they think is the most compelling Buddhist account, but you're also trying to engage using a Buddhist insight into contemporary discussions about metaphysics of the self. Would that be accurate? I think it is, I mean, I just want to stress, it is a Buddhist view, not, you know, I don't, I'm not claiming it is the Abhidharma view. It is a particular philosopher's view, a Vasubandhu's views, as I read it. Good. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, it's always important to make sure we're talking about Buddhisms and then identify which Buddhist, because as we'll see, there there are many. Let, let's get into the arguments then. As your book basically, as I read it, goes through a series of negative arguments. You're, you're demonstrating that certain things which we might take to be marks of the self are, are not, in fact, they're not good evidence for the self. Um, you talked about this a little bit at the outset, but let's just make sure we're, we're clear. What do you mean when you say there is no self? You spend a little bit of time on this at the outset, and I think it's important. What exactly are you denying doesn't exist? Or denying so um, one thing I'm denying is that there is no, you know, one way of putting the point is there's no unity over time. You know, we are not continuing things. One of the most important insights in the Abhidharma and more generally in the Buddhist tradition is the notion of impermanence. And I think, you know, the denial of the self is very closely related to the denial of a permanent self. So that's one thing about unity over time. There is nothing that unites us um, over time, no separate physical uh, or, you know, non-physical substance that is our essence or uh, the self. And if we try and think that, you know, there is a kind of unity at a time, I think that is problematic too. I mean, you asked me about methodology um, earlier. So let me bring the, you know, when I when I started thinking about uh, unity at a time, I think one of the reasons I think it's very important for the Buddhists to deny unity at a time is because once you grant that, there is a very easy argument to grant unity over time. Um, so... Christopher Peacock, for example, in his book, Being Known, makes this a point very simply. You know, we need a subject for of experiences. And we need a subject for memory. After all, memory is an experience. So not only we get, you know, a subject of experience at a time, we very quickly get the same subject of experience over time. And that's the kind of argument I think the Buddhists really need to deny. So in a sense, I'm not going to concede any space to, you know, any thin notion of self at all. Um, and I think the most, the most intuitive notion of self is that of a self over time. And that's the one the Buddhist is really interested in denying. But just, you know, to... Um, keep that argument safe, I think we should also deny unity of experiences at a time. Got it. So so chapter three, then you start out with some challenges for, for Abhidharma Buddhists, in particular Vasubandhu, of course, here. Um, and these come from the conflict between momentariness and our, our conscious experience. So maybe you can start by laying out just what that particular conflict at least seems to be, what problems it presents, um, and then we can talk about how you resolve those problems. Um, yes. So, I mean, one of, uh, you know, 
the 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 simple idea there is when we think of a conscious experience it takes time listening to a piece of music is the most you know intuitive example here it takes time to listen to a piece of music and we think of that as an experience of so conscious experiences takes t- take time and the self is you know there is no self to bind all those moments together how can we even talk about having conscious experiences and i think you know there the important um insight in abhidharma philosophy uh, which vasubandhu uh, you know gets right um, is to say that in order to talk about awareness of experiences we don't need to talk about self awareness you know we don't need to we, we only talk about experiences being aware of themselves or conscious states by their nature are you know states of which we are aware that's the definition there's nothing else that you know makes us aware of conscious states so we don't need to posit anything else other than um <laughs> you know the main move that i make and this is a move inspired by some of the distinctions in contemporary philosophy is to make a distinction between you know the vehicle of representation and the content of representations um so the vehicle of representation if you like is you know neurons or whatever um but and the content of representation is the music the you know the um the piece of music or the scene in front of you and we don't need you know to make this point to explain how conscious how we can have conscious experiences over time uh, we don't need to say that the content of experiences uh, that the vehicles are per, uh, continuing things it's only the contents which continue and i think having that distinction helps to um you know address this point that we can have conscious experiences without requiring there to be a conscious self a continuing self and how do the contents continue over time in a in a buddhist context where you have this idea of momentariness um well the contents don't continue over time mm-hmm. but the contents are tied together um over time in a way that they you know they make a scene or a piece of music together um it's not as if you know the particular beat or the mel- you know the particular note lasts forever that's not what is required to hear a piece of music as a thing so there are so one way of putting the point is you know we think of we think of uh, lots of constructions out of momentary things and some constructions like a piece of music or a scene they're not uh, problematic from buddhist point of view other constructions are so we need to be wary about which constructions we will take for granted and which constructions we are going to um complain about and be wary of, of. 
I see. And I, I think it's in chapter three that you discuss Husserl. Is that correct? Yeah. I, this struck me a little bit, again, back to thinking about what you're doing with this material, is that you're navigating among both the Vasubandhu and pre-modern Sanskrit texts, uh, what w- might be characterized as analytic philosophy, and then phenomenologists like, like Husserl. Um, I don't know. Can you maybe speak a little bit to why you're drawing on Husserl in this context and how you deploy his ideas? Um, I mean, to be honest, I think, you know, Husserl's work um, about, you know, the nature of consciousness and how consciousness comes together is fascinating. Uh, What I was, what I am really addressing there is one of the challenges that Zahavi, uh, Dan Zahavi, one of the contemporary philosophers who works in phenomenology, uh, makes uh, to the Buddhists, which is to say you can't even make sense of conscious experiences without the continuity of consciousness. Consciousness um, itself is a kind of thing, you know, that needs to exist over time or at least some periods of time in order for us to ha- make sense of conscious experiences. And I think it's a serious challenge to the Buddhists uh, worldview. And I take this challenge seriously and try to answer it on behalf of the Buddhists, uh, that we can make sense of, you know, conscious experiences of the sort that Zahavi and Husserl have in mind without requiring that there be, you know, consciousness be a continuous thing. We can have mind moments or, you know, momentary mental states, uh, but still make sense of conscious experiences. Great. Thank you. So you also talk about memory, and you already mentioned this a bit, but let's dive into it in more detail. In chapter four, you're talking about, in particular, episodic memories. So maybe can you say a little bit about what those are at the outset? What are episodic memories? Right. Episodic memories are just, you know, memories when I'm remembering um, some experience I had in the past or I'm remembering an action that I did in the past. It's not just, you know, knowledge of facts. It's when you reimagine something, you know, a very important event, event. So, for example, one's graduation or one's wedding or, you know, the birth of a first child, you you can really, you know, kind of see that event again in your mind's eye. That's the kind of thing that, you know, is the sort of paradigmatic case of episodic memory, where we can think back to not only what happened, but also how I felt, how one felt at the time. And why then is this an issue or a potential issue for Buddhist philosophers? You just described a kind of causal account. Um, couldn't we just simply sort of pop that in here and say, well, there's a there's a causal story? What's, what's a challenge here? Well, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, in pointing to the causal story, you've made connection with the Indian debate because that's exactly how the Indian debate went. You know, the Nyaya had the memory objection to the Buddhist view and the Buddhist said, no problem. You know, we can give an account in terms of causal relations between momentary uh, mental states. The Mimangsa come on the scene and push the point about uh, recognition, uh, about episodic memories. You know, no, it is not just a matter of, you know, what I remember, the content of my memories. It's 
more than the content of my memories because the content of the memories itself is much more complicated. According to the Mimamsa, you see, when you have an episodic memory, it's not just I remember um, my graduation day, but I now remember I was there at my graduation ceremony. And not only that, the Mimamsa say, you see these two eyes, the I now and the I then, as being identical in your mind's eye, if you like. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, um, that is a more difficult challenge to respond to. And the Buddhist response is to say, well, you know, maybe that this identity between the I now and the I then is just a construction. There's no real, you know, memory can be an error. And then comes in the later Shiva uh, philosophers who say, well, memory can't be an error because memory has a very important adaptive role to play in learning. And so just a causal story um, and, you know, not really accepting the fact that memory is a veridical account of uh, memory experiences are veridical are going to land us in a lot of trouble. So there's this Hindu-Buddhist debate going on between the various Hindu schools stepping in to, uh, you know, to save the self and the Buddhist uh, responding to those. That's, you know, I think the main, from the Indian perspective, thinking about the... Um, episodic memory problem. So I guess one question that comes up, you've talked about constructions and distinguishing between those constructions which are um, helpful or not helpful, useful or not useful. From Vasubandhu's perspective, all constructions are erroneous, would you say? They're, and would you say that they're all harmful? Does he make distinctions between constructions which are acceptable and which are not? What's going on there? Um, he doesn't make a distinction between constructions which are helpful and constructions which are not so. He talks about, you know, um, the only things that are real are the momentary dharmas, which is even much more, you know, fine-grained than talking about mental states or physical states. It's, if you like, physical tropes and mental tropes. Um or atoms, you can think of uh, them in those terms, those are the only things that are ultimately real because they're not constructed. Uh, they're symbols. Everything else, according to Vasubandhu, is a construction and falls in the you know space of what we might call um, conventional reality. And I think about these conventional realities, we have to be more careful when we think about which of them, you know, we can kind of use for the purposes of ease of conversation and, uh, you know, being able to sort of talk about the world and which help us, you know, given our cognitive limitations, which help us um, in organizing the world around us you know thinking of just atoms interacting would be a very hard way to go about your daily business so sure some some of those constructions can be useful and we make them all the time but i think one needs to be more discerning about which of those constructions have the potential of being harmful and my sense is that the person construction is one of those constructions
it's a harmful construction, but the construction of conscious experiences is a useful construction. Now, some of the people who've heard Sideritz, Mark Sideritz on your um, podcast will know that, you know, here I am having a debate with Mark. I really have a lot of respect for Mark's work. And I think um, he has done a great service to Buddhist philosophy, but I think his meteorological nihilism, which he thinks of a way of interpreting Abhidharma and Vasubandhu's view, I think does some harm to the Buddhist view. I think they would want to keep conscious experiences as something in the realm of what is, you know, a useful construction. It's a construction, but it's useful nonetheless. Whereas person construction is a harmful construction and we should be wary of it. We can't just rule out all constructions, um, you know, straight right across the board. And would you say that... um that they have a different metaphysical status for the conscious constructions. I mean, in contemporary philosophy, people throw around terms like supervenience and emergence and all these sorts of categories. So is something like that going on, or is this merely distinguishing at the level of which constructions are useful and not? I think it would have to be, you know, merely which constructions are harmful. The Buddhist metaphysics, in a way, you know, there's a normative goal that the Buddhists have in mind of reducing suffering. Yeah, very reasonable goal. I think we should all accept at least reducing suffering, if not eliminating it, is a worthwhile thing to do. So there's a normative goal that is, in a kind, in a kind of way, will you know drive this distinction between what is useful and what is harmful. Um, I don't think that Vasubandhu is going to appeal to a notion of, you know, supervenience or anything like that. In some sense, he thinks the only things that are real are just the atoms. That is the Abhidharma view. But I think when we are thinking about, you know, uh, making a distinction between harmful and useful constructions, we should look to the normative goal of Buddhism rather than looking at, you know, um, notions like supervenience and so on. Okay. So just not to belabor your your debate with Mark too much, but just because this is a, a point in your book that is a, the thesis you're putting forward, it's something like, yes, it's true that only the dharmas or, or these sort of simples are, are ultimately real, um, so you would agree with that, but you would disagree with the claim that we can usefully have uh, talk about um, most of the things that someone like Mark would want to say we can have talk about. Yeah. Say, save for consciousness, you want to say that's a useful kind of talk. Has, has that? Yeah, consciousness is useful, and I think you know some other things might not be harmful. So I don't, I don't want to fight about tables and chairs and pots and pans, but I do think I want to fight about persons. Gotcha. Okay, good. Well, let's um, let's move forward then in, in the the list of things which you're you're using to undermine the the view of self. Uh, synchronic unity is an, is the topic of chapter five, and you again in your nice overview at the outset, you've you've laid this out a little bit. But let's dive in and talk about the different forms of synchronic unity that you take up here. Why 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 not just talk about synchronic unity? What are the the variations on this topic? 
I think there's some kinds of synchronic unity that the Buddhist has to accept. Again, you know, I think it is the point about constructions coming in. I mean, there is some representational unities because of our cognitive systems. We, you know, tend to see some features um, of the thing together. So we don't see, even though the dharma of color and the dharma of shape, according to the Buddhists, are separate dharmas, um, we we must be careful that you know when we see something we see a colored shape but that kind of representational unity is not a threat for the buddhist view so when i'm denying you know when i'm worried about synchronic unity i'm kind of worried about the kind of unity that implicates a subject of experience you know the unity that at at any one time there is you know, one kind of conscious scene, one unified conscious scene in front of me. I mean, Tim Bain in his book helpfully called it um, phenomenal unity. That's what he's interested in giving an account of for. And not surprisingly, at the end of his book, he says we need a virtual self, you know, to account for this kind of unity. That's exactly the kind of move, the kind of synchronic unity that worries me, which forces us to, you know, posit some kind of a subject of experience or a virtual self or a, um, you know, a, some, some kind of self-representation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So how should we make sense then of uh, this notion of representational unity that you're your uh, understanding in the book because um, so is it something like we we have erroneously taken ourselves to be having a unified experience uh, is this sort of an application of an error theory here or is there a genuinely sort of a genuine unity to our experience um, yeah I think you know I mean it is the way um, we the way we have st- our brains are structured, the way our cognitive systems are structured, you know, some of the unity, I think, is is there as a matter of reality or as a matter of being real. Now, you know, I'm not claiming that the Buddhists get everything right mm. about the science of vision or the science of multimodal experiences. Um, so, you know, they, they they're not even... Of course, Vasubandhu is going to say that's a construction. That might be a construction, but that is a construction of our visual, you know, visual cognitive system. And that construction is a helpful construction because it helps us organize the world in a certain way so we can, you know, we can actually successfully survive as an individual and as a species. So I'm not worried about taking you know, a sort of uh, issue with that kind of thing. But there are some of these unities that we, and they're, you know, uh, 
probably even the sense of self, you might think. You know, it's a deep um, representational kind of cognitive, our cognitive systems force us to think um, about it in this kind of way that we think that we are continuing selves. You know, the self-illusion is very deeply and perhaps, you know, important for um, the success of our uh, species. But I, I, I mean, I think at least the Buddhist point, so let me come back. I never say in the book, the Buddhists are right. At least the Buddhist point is, no, this kind of thing is responsible for a lot of suffering. And so this is something we should put in the category of harmful uh, constructions and get rid of the sense of self. I mean, it's not easy to get rid of the sense of self. And I think it's an open question whether getting rid of the sense of self would really be a useful thing to do. But that's the Buddhist point. And I guess what I'm trying to do here is to make the case that, you know, our sense of uh, self as an owner of experience, so the point about, you know, the ownership um, is something that seems to be very deeply rooted, but, you know, not not really a veridical mm. thing. You know, who knows what reality is like and who knows what you know, uh, what will turn out to be useful in the long run. But there's at least a case to be made that, you know, the Buddhists are right in thinking that this construction, the sense of self, as the sense of ownership or bodily ownership is just a construction. Yeah, so what you're... What you're doing here is also has an ethical aspect to it, and we'll we'll talk about that. That comes towards the end of the book yeah, when you think about yeah. the what the bodhisattva ideal. Uh, maybe I could pick up on a little bit on your use of uh, contemporary cognitive science, which you've you've talked about throughout the interview so far. I know there are, there are tendencies in Buddhist philosophy to, I guess, there's a sort of naturalizing uh, Buddhism uh, strategy, and there's different ways, I guess, that people try and make sense out of Buddhist philosophy in light of the the best science. And you touched a little bit on that, uh, but I think it's a it's a big area of discussion. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you think about that. Um, look. You know, my aim here was not to naturalize Buddhism. What I'm actually doing, if at all, I'm using, you know, the tools in contemporary science, uh, cognitive science, to make the Buddhist case, to help the Buddhists out where where I feel there are some gaps in the argument. So it's not an attempt to naturalize the Buddhists. It is an attempt to think that, you know, in, in the in the project of making um, a view plausible, if there is help that, you know, we can get from contemporary cognitive science or other contemporary philosophers, philosophy. And I'm not someone who thinks of, you know, divisions among traditions or divisions amongst kinds of philosophy we do to have any meaning or any, you know, any basis for leaving those things out. I think, you know, I'll use whatever I can from analytic philosophy, from contemporary philosophy, from phenomenology to make the Buddhist case. And that's 
that's how I'm using cognitive science. I'm not saying Buddhists need to use cognitive science. I'm just coming as a philosopher saying, here are some resources in cognitive science that I think can be used uh, to strengthen the Buddhist case. So I'm going to help myself. That's great. Thank you. That's helpful in placing your, your project. So let's see, we have as well agency and ownership are the other two major topics that uh, that you take up. So you mentioned ownership a moment ago. Agency is also involved in here. How do you distinguish between agency and ownership? What's the difference between these these ideas? So these are, you know, I mean, if you think about um, what an ordinary notion of a self is, the self is the agent of experience, agent of action, and the subject of experience. And if you don't have a self, what are we going to do about, you know, these two very important roles that the self plays? This is exactly what Basubandhu says. We don't need an agent of experience, mental states. Um, we don't need a subject of experience. Mental states um, are enough to explain the ownership relation. And we don't need an agent of actions. Mental states can do all the work in explaining agency. That raises the question, um, you know, what about, you know, so should we posit a sense of self? And many contemporary philosophers say, okay, there is no subjects of experience, no agents of action, but we still have a sense of self as the sense of ownership and the sense of agency. And, you know, here is where I take a sort of issue with them um, in saying not only there is no self required as the subject of experience, there is also no self, there is no sense of self of ownership. You know, that sense of self is a mere illusion or the sense of agency is a mere illusion. The sense of control that we have, for example, you know, in sense of agency, the point is easier to make because there is a sense of control I have over my action. Um, and that is a bit of an illusion. I think that is very important to the Buddhist case. Yeah, I think that might be one of the, the maybe more surprising, at least to me it was, it claims in the book that the idea that it's not even that we don't have agency, but that we don't even have a sense of agency or, or we don't have a sort of agentive experience, as you put it. Can you unpack a little bit what it is that you're denying here? Because some people might say, look, I, I think I'm an agent. <laughs> I think, um, yeah. So let me say, um, and perhaps, you know, I have not um, said it very clearly in the book, as, you know, one realizes that, as one finishes writing the book uh, and then starts thinking about other things, one realizes what the project is. Even um, So what the Buddhist is saying really is, you know, that there is an agentive experience, but this agentive experience, sorry, I, I need to say that again. So there is a sense of agency, but the sense of agency is not based on an experience of agency. Rather, the sense of agency is an illusion. So that's the point I want to make. Sure, we have the sense of agency. I feel, you know, I'm the one who's um, doing this interview and drinking this glass of water. Um, there is a sense of agency. But is there really an experience 
is the sense based on there being an experience which underlies our sense of agency. You know, so if there was an experience, then the sense of agency would be a veridical. I'm actually experiencing this thing, you know, in think about it in perception, you know, we make the um, distinction between a perceptual experience and an illusion or a hallucination. You know, if there is a dagger hanging in front of me, to take the Hamlet example, that's an experience of a dagger. If there is no dagger in front of me, then I'm hallucinating. But from a first-person experience, they're both saying the same. I have a sense of there being a dagger in front of me. So that's what I want to say. I have a sense of being an agent, but my sense is not based on an agent of experience, something real out there. My sense is based on this illusory, um, you know, illusory phenomenon that I take myself to have the sense of control and I take myself to be the agent you know, of actions, to be autonomous and all of those sorts of things that the Buddhist wants to push back on. I see. So the so experience here is something like like a success term in, in the sense of how how Buddhists and other philosophers would use perception as a term for a way of knowing and not just any sort of uh, cognition or jnana, some sort of yeah. subjective that's, that's exactly what I meant. So I'm not denying, I, you know, the sense of agency, but I'm denying agent experience underlying the sense of agency. I see. Yeah, and it struck me that um, throughout the book, this is one of the things that you're you're pressing on, though, is this uh, the way that people take these subjective um, seeming experiences, or let's say seemings, uh, as as evidence of, for at least some kind of minimal uh, self here, right? And so, so the what you're pushing back on, if I'm tracking, is that. Um, maybe there are certain places where we need to have a construction that is imposed and is unreal and that's helpful. Um, but the minimal self or a person is not that kind of construction. That's right. Exactly oh. right, Malcolm. Okay, good. Just want to make sure I'm, I'm tracking. <laughs> okay. So, so no agency, um, we seem to experience it, but we, uh, not don't experience it in a in a strong sense in a vertical sense, um, and we don't have ownership. And this argument follows the same kind of uh, sort of strategy. Would you say what are what are important differences between the question of agency and ownership? I think the <laughs> I find it um, so. Here's here's how I might begin. So everyone agrees that the Buddhist wants to deny you know, agency. But when it comes to ownership, people disagree. People think the Buddhists don't want to deny a sense of ownership or ownership. And I think, you know, in Vasubandhu, I see it clear as. So um, one of the reasons why I think this happens is because people want, you know, when they try and reconstruct the Buddhist views, um, they want to put them in a very plausible light, as strong as possible. And I think that's a very good thing. And um, 
most philosophers would think, you know, arguing against the subject of experience, arguing against the sense of ownership of experiences is going to be a very hard task. I mean, you know, ever since Strawson, it's kind of taken for granted that the no ownership theorist is, you know, cannot even make his case consistently. So I think, you know, my my sense is in one in one sense, I want to be I want to be true to the Buddhist, you know, what Vasubandhu is saying, and say exactly what the case is, and then try and make it as, you know, as strong as possible. Agency, everyone in the Buddhist literature, almost everyone would agree with me that you know we don't have this authorial uh, sort of uh, control over our actions. And it was a tricky chapter to do the sense of ownership chapter um, to kind of nail this point that we can make sense of experiences. But I think one thing, one important, you know, thing to remember is that the Buddhists cannot is not denying that they can use, you know, indexicals. There's nothing wrong with using, you know, uh, indexicals for here and now. Um, and that can do some of the work of location of experiences um, in a place at a time. We don't really need any, you know, sort of any further robust notion of self or, you know, the self is the location of experiences, you know, where, whose experiences, where are they happening is the problem um, that one faces. I can't even talk about it without experiences belonging to someone. You know, that's that's what the issue is there. So I think, you know, my sense was to reconstruct it and the notion of experience um, and the notion of subject of experience in a way that we can make sense of experience without sort of requiring, you know, that there is a subject of experience or I am the owner of those experiences. And I help myself to, you know, resources in contemporary philosophy. There's two notions of subjects. Um, and also I think this um, is, you know, one sort of strategy in the book that I've used from a cognitive scientist, Pannoni, um, and he argued, you know, the sense of freedom. I mean, his his original work was about free will. You know, do we have a sense of freedom? You know, yeah, we have a sense of freedom, but is there an experience of freedom underlying the sense of freedom? And his answer was no. There is no experience of freedom. It's just when we are not free, we seem to notice it. When I am, you know, constrained I have a very strong phenomenological experience. And that gives me the sense in, that in all the ordinary cases where I don't feel constrained, um, that there must be, you know, that is the, that is the sort of um, move behind a sense, uh, our feeling that, we, you know, we are free, our sense of freedom. And I kind of use the same strategy for agency and for ownership. When I don't have ownership of my experience, I have, a, or, you know, I use the case of bodily experiences to make the point, um, to make the point vivid, because there are people who don't have, you know, sense of their body and 
even some thoughts, you know, these are not my thoughts. They're being put into my head. So um, people with psychiatric disorders have these conditions. Um, and there the phenomenology is very strong. And I think that's what happened in the case of ordinary people as well. Our phenomenology in the ordinary case, when we don't have control, is so strong that we seem to think in all the cases where we have control or in all the cases where we have ownership, uh, there must be, you know, an experience of ownership. So we posit this experience of ownership as underlying. So I think, you know, this is one illustration of where I've used a resource from cognitive science to, you know, um, help out the Buddhists in how to make sense of uh, what is going on here. That's helpful. Uh, let's make sure we don't leave out your discussion of the bodhisattva ideal, because this is sort of underlying uh, and leading up to this throughout the book. So you've, at this point in the book, sort of stripped away all of the reasons that we might have to think that there's a person or a self. Um, and now we have this question about both the revisionary metaphysics, which is this chapter eight, and then the particularly Buddhist question about the bodhisattva ideal. Um, maybe we can kind of bring these together for, for the sake of time. What do you think the implications should be for us on the per, on the sort of picture that you have sketched, on the arguments that you have put forward, I should say rather, uh, about how we think about the world and think about ourselves in it. Let's start there, maybe. Yeah, um, I mean, when we think of you know the Buddhist, Buddhist metaphysics and we think of doing without selves or persons, um, the you know most philosophers have been worried by. I think, you know, these epistemological concerns, what to do about memory, what to do about agency, what to do about the sense of um, self and so on and so forth. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've only focused on those debates. We haven't thought about what are the normative implications if we totally... So part of the book, you know, I know you described it as negative, mostly negative arguments, um, but... Uh, I, I thought, you know, I was doing sort of positive work in saving the Buddhist yep. view in the first part of the book. And then all I'm doing in the last two chapters is kind of expressing a concern that if we don't have selves and persons, then it means a rather radical revision of our ordinary practices, including moral responsibility. And I think, to some extent, this is Parfit's message too in Reasons and Persons. You know, it's not just about, you know, um, what the arguments are, but these arguments about persons have implications for reasons, you know, hence Reasons and Persons, about what we should do, what reasons we have for um, our practices. And they need to be questioned. And there's been a kind of... I think in Western philosophy, people don't take the normative implications of Parfit's visionary metaphysics very seriously. Um, and I'm, you know, what I'm trying to do is try to show in chapter eight that Parfit is just as uh, revisionary as my favorite Buddhist, Vasubandhu. And if these are 
you know, if we take this metaphysics seriously, this is the kind of um, revisionism that is uh, to be expected. So Parfit says very clearly, you know, that uh, we, if we, if we have, are really reductionist about person, then you know this notion of desert, you being responsible for your actions doesn't uh, really make sense. And similarly, I think Vasubandhu um, says that you know moral responsibility will have to be a matter of degree. How much, you know, we can hold a person responsible. I think that seems to be. Uh, if there is, you know, not the same person over time, I think it just seems to be just the most obvious conclusion to draw. We're only, you know, sort of like that earlier person to some extent because of all the changes that have happened. And if we are only like that earlier person, we should be responsible only to a degree. That's And that's a pretty radical implication in terms of our existing institutions which take i mean there's degrees of responsibility in some sense but not in this radical sense where you you come into a courtroom and they 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 evaluate how how metaphysically similar you are to a past version of yourself and meet out a judgment in that sense yeah exactly you know our practices don't track any of this revisionary stuff that's the kind of you know um a message i have in chapter eight and saying a little more about you know what would be the uh, what would be the consequences of Buddhist metaphysics, and then in chapter nine, I kind of you know go to the extreme of the Bodhisattva ideal and say, you know, perhaps there are good reasons to hold back and reconsider um, whether you know we really want the metaphysics to drive our practices. Um, now. Notice that nowhere in the book I've said anything about who's right here and, you know, who's got the metaphysics right or, you know, what even counts as, um, you know, should the metaphysics right methodology, should the metaphysics um, drive the um, normative practices or should it be the other way around? And it's an open question at the end of the book. I think they have to come together, but I don't like one or the other approach. I think... What is happening in contemporary philosophy? So, if you look at Schechtman, Bellman, and all, they want the practices to, you know, drive the metaphysics. So we construct a self. We come up with a narrative view. We construct these selves um, because we can't have, you know, people even talk about the deep self, the true self. I mean, imagine Vasubandhu; he'd be very upset by all this. Uh, um, I can't even talk about him being in his grave because he must be cremated. And, um, so he must, you know, I think, so one approach that becomes quite popular in contemporary philosophies, we, we let the practices drive the metaphysics and come up with a narrative construction of the self. And that's, you know, something I think we should worry about. The book doesn't, of course, cover this, I just say that in the concluding remarks. If anything, it seems to me the right, you know, methodology in this area has to be both the metaphysics and the uh, ethics, you know, thinking about what's the best we can do and what's the best way we can live and what is our nature, what is actually, um, what is it that human beings 
um, are capable of. And so we need science and we need all the help we can get from all the various philosophical traditions. One more question about that chapter. Uh, again, something that struck me was the claim, again, please correct me if I've gotten this wrong, um, that maybe even Buddhists themselves, like Vasubandhu, shouldn't pursue the bodhisattva ideal, that perhaps there's some kind of internal tension there. And I know you're, you're not necessarily wanting to 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 draw a firm sort of conclusion about who's right or, or who's wrong. You said that, but can you speak a little bit about what in, internal tensions you're seeing here? I think the internal tension in um, the, you know, specifically in the bodhisattva ideal. Okay, let me say this. I mean, I've, uh, you know, noticed that on the one hand, you know, um, there is there is a lot about, you know, the selfless, being selfless. Uh, and that's what's driving, you know, no construction of any kind of self. The thinnest kind of self is ruled out because it's going to cause suffering. On the other hand, you know, even when it comes to the bodhisattva ideal in some of the bodhisattva story, it, they seem to be driven by wanting oneself to achieve the bodhisattva idea, you know, being a bodhisattva somehow becomes very important to, you know, being selfless. And it just doesn't hold up because, you know, people, uh, you see all these bodhisattva stories making, bodhisattvas making claims about um, making sacrifices, but making these sacrifices, big sacrifices so that they can become bodhisattvas. And I think that's a mistake. You know, it's it's the them you were going to get rid of. You know, I want to be greater than every other bodhisattva. I think that just misses the point of the whole enterprise. Um, and that's that's the tension. And I think you know, I think the Buddhists are very aware of this tension, even in the tradition. And I think the living Buddhist tradition has got lots of ways to, you know, solve this problem. We have to think about Buddhism as a living philosophy. Great. I think that's a, a great point uh, to conclude. I've taken up a, a lot of your time already, and I appreciate appreciate your time uh, in this conversation. Um, what are you working on now that the book is, is just about out or is, is out? It should be soon. Uh, yes, I am working on how to live without a self. I almost got you to the point of the living Buddhist tradition. You know. oh, okay, let's we'll continue then. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it is working out, you know, what the actual Buddhists living in societies in Thailand, in many other Buddhist countries, um, how they resolve the kind of tensions I pointed to towards the end of the books, Buddhists do punish people, Buddhists do have vows and a very, you know, well-specified system of punishments. Uh, so one of the projects I'm interested in is thinking about, you know, uh, how Buddhist societies uphold, you know, the central Buddhist theses, but at the same time are able to live their life in a way, you know, that is conducive to a good um, to living well, 
let's say I'm, you know, again, not claiming the Buddhists have worked it out and they have the best kind of life. I'm sure they struggle with problems like many of us, but um, that's one of the things I want to look at. The other thing I want to very quickly say, I am thinking about responsibility without a self, how to work out what I said in the book was very minimal and I'm not happy with it. Let me say that. I would like to, you know, say something about how we even think about the notion of moral responsibility without a self and without a self in my strong, you know, sense in which I've explained in the book, which I think at least is Vasubandhu's sense. What would he say about moral responsibility and how do we, how do we resolve that? Great. And are these projects taking you into the Vinaya sort of tradition are you looking at contemporary things too i am i am looking at the vineyard tradition very much i'm looking at the vows um the literature on the vows i'm looking at the you know at the buddhist bodhisattva stories i'm looking at buddhist societies you know the kinds of ceremonies they have um and you know what is the importance these uh not just the philosophical point or the reason, but also how they play a role in, you know, sort of allowing or, you know, helping the Buddhists to lead a more conducive and congenial, you know, to have cooperation in the society. Um, So just looking at actual, actual Buddhist practices. Great. Well, I look forward to to reading those projects in book or article form when they are completed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much.